0: Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Micah, chapter 2. We'll be reading and considering verses 1 through 5, and you can find that on page 1071 in your Pew Bible. Uh, We have a portion of the inspired Word of God that comes to and through the prophet Micah as he ministered uh, to the covenant people of Israel, uh, both Israel, the ten northern tribes, and also Judah, the two southern tribes. Um, just prior to the exile, just prior to the time when the Lord would sovereignly use foreign kings and nations, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, to carry the covenant people of Israel off into captivity uh, as a chastisement and a punishment for Israel's sin. And so Micah, serving as a prophet, receives a revelation from God and then gives that revelation to the people of God. And so we also then read and uh, listen to this Word as it comes to us from God as it speaks to us in our own context. Micah 2, 1-5 through 5. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. In that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people, how He has removed it from me. To a turncoat, He has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ in past history, especially around the beginning of the 19th century and all throughout the 1800s and even throughout our current generation and especially within the last maybe 10 years, there has been much emphasis given to the so-called social gospel. And maybe many of us, and perhaps rightly so, we have a negative reaction to this emphasis upon a social gospel. We emphasize that the gospel is first and foremost concerned with a vertical relationship between us and our God. Uh, But I would remind you that there's always a danger of an overreaction. And the overreaction would be to minimize any type of social implications from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The overreaction would be Uh, to say that the gospel doesn't really impact how I live with my fellow man. The gospel doesn't really impact how I deal with my fellow man. Perhaps you say uh, in business interactions and even just in the, the common social life that we share. But the gospel, that is the power of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy that comes to the Christian in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, is a transformative gospel. What we mean by that is the gospel changes people. And as it changes people within the very inner depths of their soul, it will also change how people interact one with another. And it will do so in a positive way so that human beings with depraved hearts who live at enmity against one another, when they truly experience the work of the gospel, will have those hearts turned from enmity to love. And rather than hate their fellow man, they will begin, not perfectly, but they will begin to walk and to express love towards their fellow man. And so the Christian loving God loves his fellow human being. And those are the two great commandments, as we hear them summarized every Sunday morning from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first and the greatest commandment is that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is similar to the first. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, as we reflect upon Uh, These basic truths will do so looking at the passage that is set before us from the Word of God, Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, with this theme. And the theme itself ought to uh, awaken a, a note of concern within us. The Lord threatens His people for injustice. The Lord threatens His people, His covenantal people, those people who lived in a unique relationship with Him. The Lord here is not threatening disaster upon the Philistines. He's not threatening disaster upon the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The Lord is not threatening disaster upon the unbelieving and impenitent world. Certainly, they also will be judged. And they will be judged righteously. But the Lord here is dealing with His covenant people, or you might, to put it into today's context, the Lord is speaking to the church. As we consider this scene, we'll notice, first of all, the display of injustice, and then secondly, the evil of injustice, and then thirdly, the punishment of injustice. So the Lord threatens His people for injustice. The display, the evil, and the punishment of injustice. Uh, the display of injustice, as we said, the Lord is indicting in legal terms. Uh, the Lord is summoning His people, His covenant to people, into a courtroom setting in which the Lord Himself will bring charges, a lawsuit, so to speak, uh, against His covenant people. Uh, and He's going to charge them with injustice. And we'll notice, first of all, underneath the display, the realm in which this injustice was displayed. So where was Israel displaying injustice? It was displaying injustice or a lack of right dealing with one another, especially within the social realm and the business realm. As neighbor plotted against neighbor, and you'll notice what our text says, and it describes an interesting thing, uh, that the evil man, also in the covenant community, the evil man lies upon his bed in the middle of the night, and he plots and he devises all types of plans by which he can obtain his neighbor's material possessions, especially his neighbor's land. And so you get this picture of a man in Israel lying in the evening upon his bed, and in his mind his thoughts continue to race about how he can obtain more and more and more material goods. And not in an honest and a sort of gainful employment, but rather through all sorts of plots, through all sorts of tactics, and through all sorts of techniques. And you notice verse 2, uh, when the morning comes, they go out and they take these fields by violence and also houses. And the emphasis in verse 2 is upon that word, they seize. Now, you notice in our translation, the word them is italicized because in the original, that word is not there. It's given by our translators to help us understand the meaning. But the emphasis is on this seizing, this grasping, this having to get, having to get more and more and more with little or no regard for the neighbor, for the fellow Israelite, for the fellow member of the covenant community. And so they oppress, they push down, they suppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Uh, Now indeed, we must remember that the power of the gospel impacts also our social interaction. Uh, I give you two references from 1 John. 1 John 2, verses 9-11. through He that is the person, the person who says he is in the light, and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. To put it into Micah 2, verse 1, the man who says that he is a member of the covenant community of the people of God, but lies upon his bed and devises evil tactics by which to suppress his neighbor, he still lives in spiritual darkness. Or to put it in today's context, the man who sits in the congregation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is that enmity with his fellow believer. Although he may say that he is in the light, if he hates his brother, he is in darkness until now. John continues, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness had blinded his eyes. And John, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, drives this point home again and again in his first general epistle. To reference one other passage, 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. If someone says, oh, I love God, and I serve God, and I worship God, but then lives with enmity and spite against his brother, In the Lord? Well, John underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit cuts through the lie and says he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. But there was this injustice of secret coveting. And that really is the the root of the sin that's being identified in Micah chapter 2. Yes, certainly there is the action of seizing the neighbor's land, the neighbor's inheritance. And there is this desire to oppress the neighbor without any regard for the neighbor's status. But behind it all or in it all, there is this coveting. And, And coveting, which is an inordinate desire for something, is the root of their actions. And coveting comes from an exaltation of oneself and then a debasing of one's neighbor. Or you might just simply say, coveting is a symptom of the idolatry of self. I want, I need, I deserve, and so I am going to get at all expenses, regardless of the impact that it may have upon my brother or upon my sister. And this, indeed is an injustice. So, first and foremost, uh, in connection with God Himself. But then also in connection to our spiritual brother or our spiritual sister. Now, a very blunt, a very to-the-point diagnostic tool to see if that our hearts perhaps are infected with this type of covetous nature is to ask ourselves, can we rejoice? with our fellow brother or fellow sister when they prosper? Can you rejoice with your fellow spiritual brother, your spiritual sister, especially here in the congregation, but by extension, your Christian brother or sister, wherever he or she may be, can you honestly rejoice with them when they prosper? Because the covetous person can't. Oh, they can perhaps put on a facade. They can smile and say all the appropriate congratulatory terms, but inside there is an unease, an unrest that bites and gnaws at their very soul as that idol of self begins to raise its ugly head and begins to speak, I want, I need, I deserve even more than what they have. And that's what was going on in the covenant community of Israel. And this is the display of injustice. A secretive coveting, a deceitful gaining, and a sinful living. Uh, But more on that sinful living in our second point, the evil of injustice. Because today's terms, we would say, so what? I mean, we might be tempted to think, well, these individuals, they're just simply engaging in good old-fashioned capitalism. Uh, You buy low, you sell high, you you make a dollar, and it's all good. Well, certainly, uh, a man ought to work so that he can eat. And there's nothing wrong with uh, bringing a home, so to speak, uh, a, a good wage. No, this is something different. This is an evil injustice because it is violating God's moral commands. But not only God's moral commands, but also God's covenantal stipulations. First of all then, as a subpoint, the evil of injustice. This is evil because it violates God's moral commands. Especially the second table of the law. And now we understand, hopefully we understand, that the law of God is especially revealed in the Ten Commandments that are given and recorded in Exodus chapter 20 and then later also recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I know there's some debate about how these two tablets were organized or arranged. We understand that there are the first four commandments which deal specifically with our relationship with God. Uh, the last six commandments deal with our relationship towards our fellow man. The second table of the law. Now, of course, they're inseparable. Uh, When you sin against one commandment, you really sin against all ten of them. But the second table of the law, those six commands that deal with how we are to interact with our fellow man, those were the commands that were being violated as these inhabitants of Israel and Judah interacted one with another. And I just want to make a point because this point is so basic and yet so misunderstood and even denied in our own day. These ten commandments of God are perpetually binding. And, and that's why, boys and girls, you learn, I hope, from a young age that the commandments were not written uh, on an etch-and-sketch. Now, you may say, I don't even know what an etch-and-sketch is. Well, you come talk to me after the service, and I'll explain it in a little more detail. An etch sketch was something you could write on, and then shake it, and everything would go away. All of the writing would go away, and it would be just completely blank. Bring it maybe up to date, you could say, you know, write it on a whiteboard. You can just erase it. God did not write the Ten Commandments on an etching sketch or on a whiteboard. He wrote them on tablets of stone, symbolizing their permanency. Now, perhaps you're saying, and if you are saying that, that's good. Perhaps you're saying, well, this is very basic. We understand these things. Congregation, not everyone in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day understands these things and our strange winds of doctrine blowing even through our own churches, saying that the Ten Commandments are no longer valid, no longer applicable to us today. The Ten Commandments indeed express the moral will of God. And because God is a God who does not change, His moral law never changes. So when you violate one of the commandments... You engage in an act of evil, an act of sin. Uh, That not only is severe in and of itself, as it brings a person underneath the righteous punishment of God, but now it's heightened because this is being done in the covenant community. So there is also this additional heightening of violating the Lord's covenantal stipulations. When Israel was brought out of Egypt, They had nothing other than, you might say, the loot that God had given them from the Egyptians. Uh, God brought them through the wilderness wanderings, through a time of trial and testing, and then He brought them into the land of Canaan, the promised land. The promised land that ultimately symbolized and pointed forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And God brought them into that promised land that was inhabited by various Canaanite tribes, and God displaced those Canaanite tribes by the edge of the sword, and He then gave to the covenant people of Israel a portion, each tribe. And no doubt, uh, you've read those Bible passages, especially in the book of Joshua, where where the the tribes are given their specific allotments and then down through the families of the tribes so that every family that was a member of the covenant community received their certain plot of land, so to speak. Except, of course, for the Levites. Their inheritance was the Lord. But everyone else got a tract of land, a, a parcel of land, a section of land. And of course, it's not revealed in Scripture, but you could, to bring it into today's term, you, you could have had a, a, a plot map of the land of Canaan and say, oh yes, here's the tribe of Benjamin, and here's this family, here's Jesse's land, there it is, section whatever it might be. Uh, and there was then the year of Jubilee, because this was so important that if someone had, because of providential circumstances, fallen uh, into poverty, and if they had to sell their land, the year of Jubilee was, you might say, a resetting of all of the boundaries. And there were laws given, also in Deuteronomy, uh, that it was a violation of God's covenant community and uh, stipulations to move the boundary markers. So if you had a field next to your neighbor, you couldn't go out at night and just move the stone that was the boundary marker and move it over, uh, you know, ten feet to gain yourself uh, another couple of rows of crops. So the Lord dealt with this distribution of land very carefully because it symbolized that the covenant people of God had received this inheritance from the Lord. And now what's happening is one man is lying in his bed And he's plotting about how he can gain his fellow man's land. How he can steal his fellow man's inheritance. And what that does is it stirs the Lord up to a holy and to a righteous indignation. To say it perhaps more bluntly, the Lord is greatly displeased. Greatly displeased. When there is coveting within the church. And when there is then evil plotting within the church, and when one man devises plans against another man, the Lord looks upon His inheritance and He sees such things. And He comes in His covenantal righteousness and says, these things should not be. Therefore, Israel, prepare yourself to be brought into court by the Lord God of heaven and of earth. Exodus 32 verse 13 emphasizes this land when the Lord says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And so, There should not be an an attitude of covenant presumption, but rather of covenant obligation. And part of, and a big part of the covenant obligation, a big part of the obligation upon you and upon myself as members of the covenant of grace is that we have a certain way to live. And I want to be clear, this is not moralism nor works righteousness because this obligation is not so that we can become the children of God. We ought to live a certain way, not in order that we can gain God's favor, but we do have an obligation to live a certain way because we are those who experience God's favor. And having a gracious portion within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must understand that the only reason we have a part within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is because of the unfathomable riches of God's grace. And the only reason my brother or my sister in the Lord Jesus Christ also has a place within the church is because they also have received that grace and that mercy. And so what an evil it is for me to secretly within my heart somehow plot on how to steal my brother's gracious inheritance within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To somehow work to undermine his or her position within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To somehow work to have uh, them removed in an improper way from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wish I could say that in my years of ministry, I've never, ever, ever seen this. I can tell you stories of two men, both office bearers, not in the same church, but in neighboring churches within the same federation who could not and would not speak to each other. And they were biological brothers. And they would go sit at the broader assemblies, but they could not and they would not speak to each other. Do we honestly deceive ourselves and think that the Lord is pleased with such things? You know, that first word in verse 1, translated woe, and that, that's a good translation, but it also can be translated as the ha of the laughter that is a response of just absolute futility. The Lord looks. And he sees these members of the covenant community plotting, and the Lord laughs. And the Lord says, if you're going to act that way, I'm also going to plot something. And that brings us into our third point, the punishment of injustice. This punishment that is warned of is just and it is ironic. We just emphasize underneath the just punishment, That God is a just God. What does justice mean? And time doesn't afford us to deal extensively with this concept, although we need to be clear on what justice is, especially in our culture and in our day. Justice, ultimately, in the sense of God, is His righteous action. Giving each person that which they deserve. And and typically, in Reformed theology, we break down the righteousness of God into what we call His victorial justice, that is, His moral authority. God has the right, because He's God, to establish His commandments. So when He gives His Ten Commandments, He doesn't ask for the advice of Moses. He doesn't say, you know, what do you think about this commandment? Should I change it? Should I adjust it? No, God is God. He gives the commandments and His Word is absolutely final because He has all authority and righteousness but also there is retributive and remunerative righteousness remunerative is God says to man if you keep my commandments you shall live on the opposite there is also then the retributive righteousness if you violate my commandments you shall die and God is a God of justice and God is a God who in His justice is not mocked. Galatians 6, verse 7 speaks very clearly. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And so here in an agricultural community, we all know that if you plant corn in a field in the spring, you put the corn head on the combine in the fall, and you go out and you anticipate that you will harvest corn because you have planted corn. And Paul's argument is basically the same. What you sow, what you plant, is that which you will reap. And in the context of Micah 2, if, if you plant iniquity, if you sow within your own heart and your own plans and your own tactics this type of coveting and this type of seizing your neighbor's goods, don't be surprised when the Lord comes in His righteous justice. Because vengeance belongs to Him. And we make this point of application as we proceed to those who find themselves the subject of these evil plots. Those who find themselves oppressed even within the covenant community. Even perhaps within a so-called Christian home. Those who find themselves oppressed by the evil Plans of their fellow human being. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we can be absolutely certain that every sin will be dealt with with the perfect expression of God's righteousness in due time. Not always according to our timetable, but according to the divine timetable. Because God defends especially defends the widow and the fatherless. God has a special eye, if we may speak in this anthropomorphic kind of a way, upon those who find themselves easily prey to being oppressed. God is not mocked. There will be a just punishment for those who live with covetous hearts, idolatrous hearts, evil plotting, bitter enmity against our fellow man. But there's also a certain irony I just want to point this irony out because it heightens the reality uh, of the punishment that comes upon such persons who live this way in the covenant community. And you'll see even grammatically uh, the irony. Verse 3 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family. Against what family? Well, against the family that's described, especially under the male headship in verses 1 and 2. This man who's devising iniquity, verse 1, upon their beds. The Lord says, against this family, I am devising, notice the grammatical similarity, the exact same word, you want to devise evil plots on your bed, on your puny little bed, in your puny little house, on your puny little tract of land that I graciously gave you? Well, I then will be in the heaven of heavens, upon my royal and sovereign throne, devising disaster. And I say with love, congregation, these are not easy texts to preach on. But I do believe they're necessary texts to preach on. And as you hear these words, I would just encourage you to look in your Bible and ask if I'm making these things up. I don't believe that I am. The text is very clear. If you or if I devise, plot, plan, evil towards our fellow man, Be forewarned. God says against this family, I am devising disaster. A disaster which you cannot escape. You cannot remove your necks from it. Nor shall you walk haughtily. There will come a day, God says to the proud, in which you will not lift up your head. You will not have that arrogant look about you. For this is an evil time. And it goes on, about how He will utterly destroy such persons. And there will be no one, (verse 5, to determine boundaries by lot. Oh, you're concerned and you're evil plotting about gaining your neighbor's land? There's going to be a day in which no one will identify any parcel of land because everyone will be marched off into Assyria or to Babylon. There is something ironic at times with God's righteous, chastising judgment. You can think of David. By an act of sin, conceives a son. And when the Lord comes to chastise David, even though David's guilt is forgiven, still the Lord corrects David in an ironic sort of a way in that that son dies. Or perhaps you think of the irony, also, Absalom Absalom, as he walked in all of his self-congratulatory pride, and as he looked upon his hair that was the pride of himself and of those around him, the irony is that he lifted up and plotting against his father David this evil as he lied upon his bed, found his death as his long locks of hair become entangled in a branch. You can think of Haman's plot against the Jews, and especially against Mordecai. You know the irony well if you remember the story. Haman builds a gallows. He's plotting evil against Mordecai. But at the end of the narrative, who is the one hanging from the gallows? Haman. So a warning to all of us. If we, in pride and arrogance, lie upon our beds plotting evil, especially against our fellow Christian brother or sister, be warned. God may be plotting disaster against you. What is the response to this type of oracle? What is the response? Uh, You have to look forward uh, in the text, and eventually we'll get there, Uh, but the response ought to be that of humility. Uh, The proud head ought to begin to hang down. Because which of us has never had an evil thought? If God should mark iniquity, who of us would be standing? If we cry out to the Lord, then the the end of Micah becomes true. If we cry out to the Lord in the sins of, Father, I I acknowledge my sin. And in humility, I, I ask for forgiveness based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then remember the meaning of Micah and glance forward to the end. There in Micah 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Pardoning iniquity of covetous idolaters of self. Coveting those who have had evil plots. Those who have devised tricks and strategies by which we can oppress one another. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? And here there is this wonderful promise for the consolation of the soul that is stricken with the reality of sin. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. And so oftentimes, the older Reformed forefathers would say, God is a God who does justice, but He is a God who delights in mercy. And we have sought to set those truths before you tonight, God is a God who does righteous justice. But He's also a God who delights in mercy and who will cast all of our sins in the depths of the sea based upon the finished and the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we find evidence to some extent of these sins within our own heart, we ought to be forewarned, but also ought to be encouraged not to continue in our sin but to make haste and go straightway to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess and to lay our soul bare before Him who knows all things and say with the words of the prodigal son returning to his senses and returning to his father's house, Father, I have sinned against You. And then know that God is a God who delights in mercy and who does indeed forgive sin. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for the opportunity afforded us in your providence this evening to turn to this passage of Holy Scripture. We do confess that it's not the easiest passage to hear or to speak upon, but it is a necessary passage. For we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable also at times for correction and for reproof, for rebuking uh, our hearts. Lord, if we find any covetous enmity within our heart, we pray that it may be dealt with swiftly in the means of repentance and forgiveness. And we ask, Father, also that true Christian brotherly love may be evident within our souls and may be expressed within the life of this congregation and by extension the church as she manifests herself in this community and all of our interpersonal relationships. May there be the display of humility May we seek peace with our fellow man that the world may know that we are those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen.